Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. midst of a teaching series that's lasting far longer than I, an, I anticipated. Uh, so I think we're just going to be in 1 Peter until Jesus comes back at this point. Uh, but we're going to be back in 1 Peter again today, which I'm looking forward to. If you have a Bible and you want to get a head start, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll meet you there in, uh, in just a couple of minutes. But I want to start with this. Just a quick show of hands this morning. How many of you feel uh, deeply wearied by the social and political war we are in right now? Just like raise your hand. Keep it up. Like raise your hand if you are worn out from fights about COVID and you're just like sick to death of hearing about masks and wearied from racial injustice, wearied from this election, okay? All hands up. Everybody's sick to death of all that. You can put your hands down. Now listen, that weariness that we're carrying and the weariness that we feel right now makes a lot of sense. And the reason it makes such sense is this. Division is inherently destructive to our souls, Division is inherently destructive to our souls. We were created by God for connection and for intimacy and for unity. And so division has a way of doing violence to the way that God designed our souls to function. Now the problem for us is that our culture is arguably more divided than it has been at any point, at least in our generation. Pew Research Center found that public opinion about the handling of the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. was the most politically divided out of the 13 advanced economies surveyed. Their report said this, quote, The American public agrees on one measure, though. Three quarters say the country is more divided than before the coronavirus outbreak, regardless of whether or not they support the current administration. Relative to those in the 12 other nations surveyed, Americans are united in seeing divisions in their country. Like, do you see how unbelievably tragic that is? The only thing that we are united on as a country is the fact that we are more divided than we have ever been. And that division is inherently destructive to our souls. This is why we're so worn out. Now, here's the thing. I am, like, mildly concerned about the growing divisions in our culture. Like, it is for sure problematic that as a culture, we have a growing inability to debate and disagree with any modicum of respect. I'm concerned about that, mildly. And uh, I would argue that it is Certainly problematic that more and more as a culture, we focus far more on the few things that we differ on rather than the ocean of values that unite us. So I am mildly concerned about the growing division in our culture. But I got to tell you, I am massively concerned about the growing divisions within the church. Like we should expect division in our culture. We should expect division in our world. But we should mourn any amount of division within the Christian church. 
See, the reality is more and more the Christian church in America reflects the culture of our country rather than the character of our king. And that's a major problem. And if you don't believe that that's actually true, I would humbly invite you to simply jump into the comments section on virtually any Facebook post on any of the countless issues we are divided on right now. It is so discouraging, or at least it it should be. I don't even know if we see it anymore. It should be so discouraging to read the tone and the tenor of how we are communicating as Christians right now. And understand, I'm not talking about the positions that we hold. I'm not talking about the positions even as Christians that we are arguing for. You can be mask, anti-mask. You can be Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Trump, Biden. I'm not talking about our positions. I'm talking about the poisonous way that we hold them and we interact with others about them. By and large, the Christian church has chosen to follow the lead of our culture rather than to be a shining example of a better way. And that is a problem. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I would argue that that is probably the most neglected and overlooked missional text in the entire New Testament. Jesus himself said, the world will know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. And so as we sit this morning on the eve of one of, if not the most contentious election in our history, who we vote for is far from the most important part of our witness in this world. And I don't care what any megachurch pastor says on Fox News or on CNN, and I don't care about what's being spouted on social media by any religious leader in our country. Jesus said that the way the world will know we follow him is not by how we vote, but by how we love one another. And before we would bow to the words of any human leader in this world, we must bow our knee to the words of Jesus. And so it is a sizable problem that as the Christian church, the big C church, we are not doing a good job of loving one another well. How we love one another, that means how we disagree, how we discuss how we keep our eyes fixed on what matters most, all of that is so much more important than how we vote on Tuesday. And if there's something in you that recoils against that, like how in the world could you say that, that's the problem. Whoops, wasn't planning on that. I'm not, I was not nearly as fired up as what that just... <laughs> Caleb, I need you to get some more tape for my, for my table. It's not working too good anymore. But I'm telling you, but listen, that's the problem. Like, there is this whole subsection of Christianity right now that if you say anything other than, uh, than, than everything is perfect in America, they think that they're, you're attacking faith. America is not our God. Jesus is our God. He is the one that we follow. So I know that everybody is saying the opposite of this. I want you to know when you wake up on Tuesday morning, Jesus will still be king. Regardless of who's in the White House, I barely care anymore. Because Jesus will still be king. It matters. It's not the most important thing. 
So our allegiance, our trust, our faith, and our hope have to be in him. And so to that end, I had no idea how timely so much of 1 Peter was going to be in this season. And I think this morning as we come to verse 8 in chapter 3, it is probably the most timely text that we could look at because Peter is speaking into the importance of unity in the local church. And so to that end, if you have a pen this morning and you like to write things down, I want you to write this down. This is our big idea. The only way... The only way to be a united church in a divided culture is through constant pursuit of Christ-like character. It's the only way. The only way to be a united church in a divided culture is through constant pursuit of Christ-like character. See, Peter was writing again to this group of churches who were at risk of being torn apart They were being torn apart by persecution. They were being torn apart by disagreement and stress and pressure. And in the midst of all of that, he elevates the importance of unity by reminding them and reminding us of who God intends us to be in this world. And so I think it is so timely that we would hit pause on everything we think it means to live like a Christian in America right now, and we would allow God's word to speak into what followers of Jesus actually look like, especially in the midst of such a divided season. And so to that end, if you haven't yet, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 8 through 12, and we're going to call this message, United Church in a Divided Culture. I want to jump right in, so I'm going to start with these first two verses, verses 8 and 9. Listen to what Peter says. He says, finally, so remember, he's been going through, talking to different groups of people in these churches, helping them understand how exactly they can go about preserving their witness and enduring unjust suffering in their lives. So now he's come and he says this, finally, all of you, so it's not a specific group anymore, it's everyone who claims the name of Jesus, all of you. Be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. And be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. But on the contrary, giving a blessing. Since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. And so here's what I see in those two verses. I see... Six marks of Christ-like character. Six marks of Christ-like character that I just want us to slowly think through this morning, all right? The first one, if you want to write something down, is this. Number one is unity. Unity. Make everything subordinate to the main thing. That's how unity happens. Make everything subordinate to the main thing. Notice he says, finally, all of you be like-minded. So let's define what being like-minded does not mean first, okay? Being like-minded does not mean that we all have to be the same. Like, look, look around this room. We are not all the same. We don't look the same. We don't all think the same. We don't all dress the same. We don't all do life the same. We do not have to all be the same. That's not what it means to be like-minded. It does not mean that we have to agree about everything, It does not mean that we have to see every issue the same way. It does not mean that we have to vote the same way. It does not mean that we have to interpret all scripture the same way or that we have to walk with Jesus in an identical fashion. What it does mean 
is that we should work to serve the same basic aim in all things. Meaning, we are to love God and we are to love others. That's the main thing in all things. That's the main thing. The problem is, we have this tendency to elevate secondary and tertiary issues over the main thing. Like many of these issues that we are grappling with as a culture right now, I know we would all agree, regardless of where we land, they're important issues. Lots of what we're working through right now are important issues, but not everything is equally important. Does that make sense? There are priorities of importance and categories of importance. Not everything is equally important. Like imagine, for instance, if Tammy and I uh, made this mistake as parents. Christmas is coming. It's November 1st today, which means... Because our culture is so insane, like the clock is ticking. Some of you already feel the stress of Christmas. We haven't even had Thanksgiving yet. So Christmas is coming. Now, one of the realities that comes with parenting uh, at Christmas time is you have to think through meaningful gifts for your kids. Now, I would argue that gifts are important. They don't have to be elaborate. They don't have to be expensive. But gift giving is one way that we express love. And so giving gifts to one another is absolutely important. But imagine that Tammy and I were so consumed with finding the perfect gift for our kids that we totally neglected to feed, clothe, and care for them between now and then. Massive parenting fail, right? The gift giving is important. But they are obviously not as important as like the main thing of parenting. And that might sound like an absurd illustration because no parent would ever do that. But I'm telling you, as Christians, we are prone to do that very thing. In Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31, Jesus said, Jesus said that the entirety of God's will in his word can be summed up in two basic commands. To love God with the entirety of our being and to love one another as we love ourselves. That is the main thing. Everything else, everything else is subordinate to this. And one common way we are missing the mark on this right now is that we have made being right the main thing. And so it just doesn't matter what we say. And it doesn't matter how we say it, as long as we are right. And again, I would argue, being right is important. Being wrong is stupid. <laughs> right? So listen, being right, being right is absolutely important. But never at the expense of being loving. Never. Not if what Jesus said is actually true. See, the only way to be a united church in such a divided culture is through constant pursuit of Christ-like character. And this means we have to strive for unity by making everything in life subordinate to the main thing of loving God and loving one another. Okay, here's number two. Number two, this second mark of Christ-like character is sympathy. Sympathy. Enter into the experience of others. Enter into the experience of others. This is what it means to be sympathetic. So rather than ignore or turn a blind eye to the hurts and the pains of those around us, as followers of Jesus, we choose to face them 
and we choose to enter into them, and we choose to even suffer with people. That is Christ-like sympathy. Many of you know this, but um, I had a close friend named Darren who took his own life earlier this year. And I found out uh, as soon as I woke up that morning. And a mutual friend called and told me. And uh, just a few minutes after I found out, Tammy came home from the gym. And uh, I took her up to our bedroom to tell her, told her the news. And she just sat on the bed with me and cried with me. And then that afternoon, Pastor Tyler took me out to get lunch. And he didn't say anything to me. But he just sat with me and... uh, periodically throughout our time together. This wasn't actually unique to this day. This is like every day for he and I. But he sat with me and he cried with me. And all day long, I got text after text after text after text from friends telling me how sad they were for me and for his family. These people all entered in to hurt with me. And this is what Paul is describing in Romans 12, 15, when he said, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. See, we have this really bad habit, as I would say, Americans, where if it doesn't affect us, we have the luxury of not caring about it. And this is what explains so much of the lack of understanding that we have about one another ethnically or socioeconomically is if it doesn't touch me, I don't have to care. And the problem is that is not Christian. One of the things that we willingly forfeit when we choose to follow Jesus is we lose the luxury of ignoring other people's pain. Instead, we enter into it. And what this means is, in the family of God, what happens to you happens to me. And so we carry the good days and we carry the bad days together. The only way to be a united church in a divided culture is through constant pursuit of this Christ-like character. And this means we practice sympathy by entering into the experience of others. Number three And arguably, according to Jesus, this would probably be the most important. Number three is love. Peter says, love one another. Sacrifice yourself for the good of others. That's what it means to love. Sacrifice yourself for the good of others. In John 15, 13, Jesus again told his disciples this. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. So to understand love as a Christ-like character trait, we really need to get the Hallmark and the Hollywood version of it out of our heads. See, biblical love is way less about a way we feel toward one another and much more about a way we behave toward one another. And the Bible almost always holds up the sacrifice of Christ as the shining example of love. In 1 John 3.16, John says, this is how we have come to know love, right? So who cares what Hollywood says? Who cares what anyone says? Here's how the Bible says we come to know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. And then listen to the implication of that. We should also lay down our lives for for the brothers and sisters. So Jesus sacrificed what he deserved in order to save us from what we deserved. He left the comfort of heaven He forfeited the honor that he was due. He willingly set aside being purely God to also become fully human. 
And then in the greatest display of love, Jesus allowed himself to be crucified for my sin and yours, to both reconcile us to relationship with him and to leave us an example to follow. And so as Christians, we have no need to question or to sit around and debate what love looks like because Jesus has definitively shown us. And so contrary to what we may think, the opposite of love is not actually hate. And I think understanding this is really important because I think our, our, our misunderstanding that the opposite love is hate is the way that we justify being so unloving toward one another. Because we think, well, I don't hate this person. I'm not being hateful toward this person. The problem is the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love biblically is self. It's elevating my desires, my comfort, my control over the needs and the good of those around me. That is the opposite of love. And so in just a super, super practical sense, just to bring it to like right where we are right now, you know, love ultimately is what either does or should compel us to serve here in our local church family at Ridgeline. The reason that so many of us wake up early to unload trailers in the rain or the snow the reason we deal with the stress of setting up and tearing down every week, the reason that we stand outside when it's hot and when it's cold to welcome people is love. We don't do it to earn anything from God. We do it because in his love, Jesus served us. And so in turn, we express our love for him and our love for one another by serving and making weekly worship possible. And so I would really genuinely encourage you that if you're not currently serving in some way here at Ridgeline and you don't have like some health issue or a significant scheduling conflict that would make it impossible, then I would find a way to plug in and to be able to serve here. It's an expression of our love for God and our love for one another. Love is what compels us to sacrifice just a little bit of ourselves for the good of our entire church family. And so if you don't have a team that you serve on, there's lots of options. You don't have to serve every single Sunday. But one way we express love for each other as a church is by sharing that load together so that the load of it does not fall to like three or four people like it did through the entirety of COVID, okay? So the only way to be a united church in a divided culture is through this constant pursuit of Christ-like character. And this means we display love for one another by sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. Number four is compassion. And you might think compassion and sympathy are the same thing. And so I want to tease these out a little bit and explain the difference. Compassion means to take action to alleviate others' suffering. So compassion, by definition, is a feeling that is expressed in action. Compassion is showing loving consideration to people who are in need instead of ignoring them. And so listen to Matthew 14, 14, describe the compassion of Jesus. Matthew says, when Jesus went ashore, notice this, he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So sympathy, like we just talked about, willingly enters into another's suffering, but compassion goes one step further in an attempt to actually alleviate it. And I'm telling you, these acts of compassion, they can be the simplest of acts. So you're showing compassion when you help someone with their kids so they can have a break or get something done. You are showing compassion when you take a meal to someone 
or DoorDash a meal to someone who is sick or struggling or in need. You're showing compassion when you see someone new here at church and you introduce yourself to them in a attempt to help them feel loved and to help them feel welcome in this new family. You're showing compassion for someone when you shovel a neighbor's driveway in the snow who can't do it for themselves. You're showing compassion when you write a card or a letter of encouragement to someone who needs it. And, I, and I, I lift those examples up because sometimes I think we unfortunately fixate on these grand acts of compassion and we mistakenly think that unless we move to Africa to build wells, we have like no opportunity to be compassionate. And don't get me wrong, these grand acts of compassion are necessary and they are good. But Proverbs 3.27 just says, when it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. So what that means is we can all practice compassion by looking for any opportunity to give good and to alleviate some amount of suffering in another's life. So if we are going to be a united church in a divided culture, we have to pursue this Christ-like character, which means we practice compassion by taking action to alleviate others' suffering. Number five is humility. Humility. Think of others more than yourself. Now, humility has not always been popular. In first century Roman culture, in fact, it was looked down upon as a sign of weakness. And so when Peter here calls these early followers of Jesus to pursue humility, he is uh, calling them to something that was very countercultural. But in our culture, when someone is labeled as humble, by and large, it's taken as a compliment, right? Even in non-Christian environments in our culture, it's not like an insult when someone says that you are humble. Like imagine someone that you knew said to you, you know what I love about you? You carry yourself with what seems like near constant humility. If someone told you that, I'm almost certain you would feel so honored, right? In our culture, uh, when you're told that, it is, a, it is a blessing and it is a gift. In our culture, what you would never hear is like, you, you, know what, uh, you know what your problem is? You're way too humble. The world would just be so much better if you had a little bit more strut to your step and if you act like the whole world revolved around you. That's what you really need and what we need more of, frankly. No one would ever say that. Humility is held in high regard in our culture. But I wonder if you've noticed this. Humility is a virtue we love to praise and loathe to practice. So we hold it in really high regard, but we're not big fans of actually having to humble ourselves. We love when we experience humility in others, and we would be honored to be thought of as humble by others, but we hate it when we find ourselves in a situation that actually demands our humility. Humbling yourself offends this ever-present, prideful, fleshly nature inside you that is always vying for protection. And that's why it's so uncomfortable to apologize when we've wronged others. It is a humbling blow to our pride. But you know what? That's the whole point. Humility is cultivated through a lifetime of humbling acts. You don't become humble by hiding in a corner and just praying, God, make me humble, God, make me humble, God, make me humble. You know how you become humble? Every time your pride is dinged, you humble yourself. And a lifetime of those humbling acts produces humility in our character. 
And this is one of the ways that we pursue unity as a church family. We humble ourselves by thinking of others more than ourselves. Lastly, number six, and I would argue this might be one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult, is blessing. Blessing. Desire God's best for those who insult you. Listen to this again at verse 9. Peter says, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. So let's be honest. I think this might be the most counterintuitive and difficult thing that Peter calls us to in these verses. Because when someone insults you, there is this deep and immediate desire to insult in return, right? Like sometimes we can't even stop it. Like it just comes straight out of our mouth in response. You cut me with your words and my knee-jerk reaction is I'm going to cut you in return. And this is one time that having a real quick wit can be a massive liability in your life. We've probably all had the experience where someone insults you and says something to you that's rude or hurtful, but you can't really think of a way to reply in the moment. But you walk away and an hour later, you have like the perfect comeback and you're like, oh, where were you an hour ago? That would have been perfect. But listen, you know that, that inability to come up with a response in the moment, you know, that's grace. It's grace. In fact, the people who really have to worry about this are those who do think fast on their feet and counterpunch very quickly and effectively with their words. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of uh, my uncles is one of those guys who thinks real fast on his feet in the moment. And so there was this time, it was a long time ago, years ago, my uncle, my aunt, and my then one-year-old cousin were all out to dinner. And as one-year-olds are prone to be, my cousin was being a nightmare in this restaurant, throwing this huge fit, crying, screaming to the point that it was obviously annoying to and disruptive for all of the people in this restaurant around them. And so my uncle later recounted that there were these two uh, very overweight women in particular sitting not far from them that were super put off, obviously, by my cousin's behavior. And if you're thinking, why would you bother to recount the fact that these two women were overweight? Just wait. It's an important part of the story. Because when my aunt and my uncle finally finished their meal and picked up my cousin to leave, as they were walking out, they had to walk by these two women. And one of the two women leaned over to my uncle and goes, hey, maybe next time you should try Chuck E. Cheese. Which is so rude, right? And I would have been like, oh, yes, we will, and walked away. (laughs) Not my uncle! This woman goes, hey, how about next time you try Chuck E. Cheese? And he goes, hey, maybe next time you try Jenny Craig. (laughs) Can you believe that? Now listen, I'm not going to lie to you. When he told me that story, in that moment I was like, that's the single most baller response (laughs) he could have possibly had in this moment. But listen... We laugh about that because what he was on the receiving end was just such an obviously rude comment. But that is the very opposite of what we are called to here. In Luke 6.28, Jesus says, Bless those who curse you. In Romans 12.14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 1 Corinthians 4.12, Paul says again, when we are reviled, we bless. 
And so listen, that means a whole lot more than not shooting off a snarky response to someone who says something rude to you. It certainly means that, but it means more. It also means that we don't criticize and complain about others behind their back. Instead, we forgive, we pray for, and I would argue that even when it's appropriate, we would find ways to speak God's best over those who insult us, are rude to us, and criticize us. This is the only way that we are a united church in a divided culture, is through this pursuit of Christ-like character, and that means that we bless by desiring God's best for those who insult us. And as we get ready to land this plane this morning, uh, I want you to notice how David roots everything that he said in those first two verses in the Old Testament passage of Psalm 34. Look at verse 10. He says, For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And so Peter here roots the motive for this Christ-like character in Psalm 34. King David says that the quality of life that we experience is not determined by our circumstances, that it is in fact determined by the character that we choose to pursue. And so if we walk in the godliness that Peter calls us to and that David echoed back in Psalm 34, we can experience the fullness of the good life God intends for us. And if we don't, if we choose to follow the way of the world rather than to display a better way, then no matter how good our theology is and no matter how many Sundays we're in church, God himself stands opposed to us. And so clearly, there is so much at stake in this. And so make no mistake, man, I know we're weary of how divided our world is right now. And I'm weary, I'm weary too. I'm just so unbelievably tired of it. And even still, in the midst of our weariness, perspective matters so much. Because there is this massive, albeit uncomfortable gift in where we are as a culture right now. Character is formed in fire. And so there is no better place for us to pursue Christ-like character than in a culture that constantly challenges it. See, the way that Jesus forms his character in us, whether we like it or not, is by placing us in circumstances that demand it. Now, we would prefer that he just sort of sprinkle it on us like pixie dust. But listen, character is formed. It is not imparted. And so these aren't just feelings that we are called to. These are practices. These are habits. These are character traits that are meant to describe who we actually are and what we actually do. And so we learn to humble ourselves by being in situations that demand it because our ego and our pride are poked. And we learn to be compassionate by carefully listening to, understanding, and entering into the suffering of those around us. We learn to bless in response to insults by coming under the fire of criticism. And we learn to love one another and to pursue unity by choosing it, by choosing it in a divided and contentious climate. And so I would argue 
that our cultural conditions right now are ripe to learn Christ-like character. The truth is, it's just super uncomfortable. And that's okay. The only way that we can be a united church in a divided culture is through constant pursuit of this Christ-like character. So the question is, will we pursue that together? Will we be like-minded and sympathetic? Will we love one another and be compassionate and humble? Will we bless when we're cursed? Let's insist that these virtues, not just how we vote, be our primary witness in this world. We are not responsible for every church in the world. We are responsible for ours. And so the question is, will we be an example of a better way? Let's pray. Father, we very much understand that we have responsibility to participate with your spirit in our own formation. Lord, we acknowledge that that does not just happen magically and it doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't happen easily. It happens with immense intentionality and effort on our part as we live in sync with what your Holy Spirit is doing in us as well. And in that, Lord, we thank you that we are not alone. That we don't change ourselves by our own strength. That we don't change ourselves by our own power. That through faith in you, we live with the very power of your Holy Spirit within us. And we can pursue these habits and practices meant to define what it means to be your disciples. And so, Lord, I pray that even right now, if you have not already, that just even in one area, you would bring conviction in our hearts. Lord, let us not listen to these verses and not listen to this message as a way of judging the world around us. Lord, lift these verses up to us like a mirror. Reveal in us where we fall short. Reveal in us where we need transformation and change. And Holy Spirit, if there's anyone listening that does not know you, I pray that you would awaken their heart to faith, that they would see and know and believe in Jesus' mind-blowing act of love in giving his life for their sin and rising again. Lord, I pray that you would help them to believe and to follow Jesus by faith. Lord, make us these types of Christians. Lord, Lord, please don't ever let our country define what it means to be Christian. Lord, help us not to allow a book or a teacher to define what it means to be Christian. Lord, you define that. You have modeled it, you have displayed it, and in your word, you have defined for us what this looks like. And so I pray, God, that our allegiance would be to you, that our trust would be in you, that our hope would be in you. Lord, this morning we make a collective decision to release the state of our country, release the state of our world, release the outcome of this election to you. You are sovereign and we trust you. And regardless of who is in the Oval Office, you remain on the throne. And so we trust you. You are good and you are with us and that is all that we need. Help us to follow you well. Make us like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.